0: I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate.
1: The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership.
0: I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my
1: candidacy for president of the United
0: States of America. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. I'm Ravi Gupta, co founder and managing partner of Arena. And today I interviewed Daniel Markovits, who's the Guido Calabresi Professor of Law at Yale Law School and the author of The Meritocracy Trap, a book that places meritocracy at the center of rising economic inequality and social and political dysfunction in this country. Daniel Markovits talks to us in this episode about how there is a wider group of people who are responsible for and complicit in the growing gap between the rich and everybody else in this country. And what he has to say is inconvenient For many of us, it's provocative, and it's going to challenge the way that we go about our politics. So let's jump right in. Professor Markovitz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Your book, which is unbelievably fascinating, The uh, Meritocracy Trap, you present the counterintuitive case that right now, one of our biggest problems, if not the biggest problem in inequality, isn't poverty, but wealth. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah. So I want to be very careful here because there's a lot of poverty in this country and there's more poverty in this country than in other rich countries. And there's an uh, an unacceptable amount of poverty. And so a perfectly plausible view to have is that the biggest moral problem we face remains poverty. But at the same time, It's not the distinctive problem of our age. So the poverty rate now, depending on how you count it, and if people want to get into that, I can get into the details, is between a half and a fifth of what it was in 1960. Whereas the share of income captured by the richest 1% is about twice what it was in 1960. So what we've seen over the past 50 or 60 years is falling poverty and rising wealth concentration, rising oligarchy. And so one point the book makes is that whatever we think morally is the most pressing problem, the distinctive problem, the problem that's new, that's different from other times, is this concentration of wealth in the richest people.
0: And so you chart this sort of the change in the relationship between the uh, the wealthy and the extremely wealthy to the middle class in part to a change in the way that the wealthy think about labor. Do you mind talking about that? like? In particular, you talk about how the wealthy used to be what I think you call, or what has been coined previous to your book, the leisure class. And now we have a group of people that you you, you and I are very familiar with, people who go to places like Yale Law School and Harvard Medical School, who have a different conception of labor.
1: Yeah. So it used to be if you wanted to know how poor somebody was, you had to ask how long they worked. And basically, the longer they worked, the poorer they were. So, in 1900, a typical American laborer would work over 60, maybe 70 hours a week, whereas the richest people did not really work at all and, in fact, defined themselves by not working and engaged in all sorts of complicated forms of public display, which the sociologist Torsten Veblen called leisure or exploit, which were specifically designed to have no product, to be totally unproductive but incredibly time-consuming in order to show that you didn't have to work for a living. Whereas today, if you want to know how rich somebody is, you ask how many hours they work. The richest 1% of Americans work many, many more hours than they used to, and now in fact work longer hours on average than middle and working class people. And again, it's important to be clear about this. The reason that the middle and working classes in this country aren't working such long hours Isn't that they don't want to work? It's that we've rebuilt our economy in such a way that there isn't enough to do. There aren't enough jobs available to people who don't have fancy educations. And so that's the distinctive feature of this time, which is that the rich work really, really hard. And and one last thought before we sort of move on is that that's ideologically incredibly important because it makes the rich feel like they've earned their incomes, like they're entitled to their incomes, uh, which I think is completely not true but is a natural consequence of the structures within which they work.
0: And, you know, one phenomenon you've written about even before this book, I think you wrote a piece in Slate saying essentially that even rich liberal elites, this isn't like a conservative phenomenon, even rich liberal elites have been resistant to redistributing wealth. And is that in part because of the sense that they've earned it? Yeah. So
1: that that piece that you referred to, um, I and some co-authors, published an article in Science in which we did experiments on actually Yale Law students, Berkeley undergraduates, and a nationally representative sample of adults. And our method, and we can go into the details if people want, enables us to tell how people trade off equality against efficiency. And what our experiments revealed is that the most elite people we tested, so Yale Law students, were much more inclined to favor efficiency over equality, not to care about distribution when the two values conflicted. Even though when we asked them whether they were Democrats or Republicans, they said by 10 to one that they were Democrats. So that elite Democrats were more concerned about efficiency and less concerned about equality than middle-class Americans. And that's connected, I think, to the fact that these elite Democrats had been working, testing, competing with one another their whole lives and had sort of internalized this market-based efficiency labor based form of hierarchy, which was very good for them, which they then thought was justified.
0: And I imagine, you know, and in your book, you're not saying that the idea of merit is wrong, but where we've, you know, we've gotten maybe carried away with it. So do you mind sharing with the audience? So like, I'll give my my story as an example. You know, my dad was a uh, an immigrant from India. I come from in many ways that Indian ethic of the test Being the great equalizer, you know, like, so the alternative to families like mine is in my head is like the Upper East Side family who has connections and they can get their kid into the right school. Whereas a a lot of Asian families in particular, Indian uh, families as well, love tests and, and competition. And we kind of, we thrive on the meritocracy because we view it as the most transparent way to success yeah. So yeah. for those of us who kind of want to keep parts of the meritocracy, how do we think about this, this challenge right now?
1: Yeah. I mean, so what you're reporting now is the very set of ideas that led the early American meritocrats to embrace meritocracy, which is that, you know, in 1950, 1960, we lived in a world in which African-Americans, women, many kinds of immigrants, Jews, Catholics, were significantly excluded from advantage and opportunity by categorical bands just based on who they are. And what the meritocrats thought was, if we make your access to advantage turn on your accomplishments rather than your race or your gender or your religion or ethnicity, we're going to have a much more open and mobile society. And, and that's true because after all, ability, talent, willingness to work aren't captured by white men. They're distributed across the whole population. And for a while, meritocracy did open up the elite. But then what happened is that the new elite that was itself produced by meritocracy turned out to be incredibly good at training its children and incredibly devoted to educating its children. And it out-trains and out-educates not just poor Americans, but the middle class. So If you take the difference between what's invested in a typical one percenter child and what's invested in a middle class child in their education, just money, set aside time or parental skill or whatever, just money. And if you took that difference and every year you put it into the S&P 500 to give to the child as an inheritance on the death of the parents, that would be over $10 million per child. And what that's produced is a system in which, because education works, when we test and we measure what we call merit, the richest kids do the best. And so what was invented as a form of equality has become a block to opportunity for most Americans.
0: One thing we're looking at a lot at Arena and uh, through the Wonder Media podcast as well is this question of how liberals are guarding privilege. and. Let's start with the sort of connection between housing and the quality of schools. We get the sense that there's a conception of neighborhood school and the conception of the neighborhood as this idyllic Pleasantville like this ideal that we need to protect. And our politics, in many ways, does protect it. But it also can be a tool for exclusion. And in your book, you kind of get at this a bit where you talk about that just what neighborhood you live in within a city says a lot about where you're going to wind up in life right
1: sure this is a huge effect and and there are two parts of this effect one effect is that when you have an elite that gets rich by working it turns out that it's going to do better if rich people and educated people live together so that certain cities and certain neighborhoods attract the richest most educated people and the concentration of rich and educated people geographically has grown enormously over the past 40 or 50 years, so that the rich and educated live in the same places now. That's a deep economic fact, and it's connected to the fact that their wealth turns on their labor. Now, when you have that system and you lay that on top of a school system that has local funding of education, what you get are enormous differences in how much is invested per child per year for rich kids and poor kids. So a really poor school district might end up investing, you know, $8,000 to $10,000 a year per pupil. A typical middle-class school district might invest twelve dollars to $15,000 per year per pupil. And a school district like Scarsdale outside New York will invest $30,000 a year per pupil. And a really rich private school will invest $75,000 a year per pupil. And it turns out that the U.S. is only one of three rich countries in the world in which even the public system spends more per year per pupil on rich kids than on middle class and poor kids. And that's connected to local funding for schools laid on top of an economy in which rich people live together now. And it's a complete catastrophe for social mobility.
0: Yeah, I think about this, you know, I was a school principal of a charter school and one thing I've noticed within the debate around school choice is that there's a narrow conception of school choice within the public debate right now. So, there's a in my party, you know, in the Democratic Party and the progressive circles, school choice has become post-Obama kind of an unpopular idea, especially in the white more liberal Communities. We've seen polling that says that although school choices support has remained relatively constant among communities of color, it has taken a lot of hits in its legitimacy among white liberals. And one thing I've I've tried to talk to my friends who disagree with me on this is you're exercising school choice. You just don't call it that. Like what neighborhood you live in is a form of school choice. Sending your kid to a gifted and talented program is a school, a form of school choice and sending your kid to private schools, especially the most potent and probably in many ways, the strongest driver of inequality probably we have. And although you don't touch on school choice too much as charters, you do touch on these other elements of choice. Do you see those contours in the debate right now? Well,
1: I think one of the last things you said about sending your kids to a private school being a form of school choice is, is absolutely right. And even more so, it's a massively subsidized choice, where the rest of society subsidizes the rich because these private schools are all organized as not-for-profits. That means that if they have endowments, and many of them do, you know, Phillips Exeter Academy I think has an endowment of a billion dollars. Their endowments are tax them. Alumni donations are tax deductible. This is a huge public subsidy for kids of overwhelmingly rich parents. These schools have student populations in which according to one estimate 80 percent of the kids come from the top four percent of the income distribution and all those kids are getting a publicly subsidized private education which their parents choose. Now the question what that means for school choice for the rest of the population is a complicated one because if you have enough structural inequality it's not clear that modeling what happens in the bottom half of the distribution on choice in the market will be better for people. It might be worse for people. It may be that what really needs to happen is that there needs to be less school choice for the rich, that there needs to be less subsidy for rich kids choosing these exclusive things. That might be a better policy. Um, I think it probably is, but it's complicated.
0: Yeah. You know, I once heard a politician say the most effective thing we could do in public education is ban private schools. And you, as you can imagine, that was not a very popular opinion, but I, I thought it was one. It's it, it, People don't talk about, you know, that's one extreme, right, is to ban the private schools. But what you're talking about is uh, a step removed from that, which is just remove a little bit of the the subsidy or a yeah, lot of or, it.
1: Or say something like, I think what I prefer is something like if the private schools don't educate more kids and more middle and working class kids then they lose their subsidy you know you're being taxed as a charity because you claim to be in the public interest actually serve the public and if yeah. you actually serve the public and have a student body whose income and class background resembles the public keep your charity but if you remain a club for rich kids why should we treat you as a charity rather than as a club and as a club you'd be taxed
0: another counterintuitive part of your book is you talk about the difference between wealth and income and just as somebody who's been following the debate over the past few years especially within the Democratic Party and most of the people listening to this are going to be progressives and democrats is we spend a lot of time talking about wealth creation and there's this the influence of of thinkers like Thomas Piketty who have charted or basically who've made the case that the problem is really at at the wealth level not the income level you seem to 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 make the case that Income is is a bigger driver of this than we're giving it credit for. Do you mind giving us a little bit of the background on that?
1: Yeah. So so I think there is a wealth problem. I want to be clear about that. And there's particularly an oligarchy problem. So that there are some people who are just astonishingly wealthy and wealthy in a way that makes them no longer subject to governance by the rest of us and allows them to interfere in politics in pernicious ways. And I think that's a real problem. And My private politics would probably favor some sort of a wealth tax, an anti oligarchy tax, although they're complicated to design well. And and their proponents, I think, make them seem simpler than they are. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who have an income of, let's say, two, three, four, five million dollars a year in this country, whose income is based on their selling their services. These are lawyers, bankers managers of various sorts, consultants of various sorts. And if you look at the richest 1% of Americans, over half for sure, and I think between two thirds and three quarters of their income comes not from capital, but from selling their own labor. And the value of their human capital, as it were, that is to say the set of skills and capacities that makes them be able to charge so much money for their labor, typically isn't included in their wealth.
0: And but. do you mind, just before you keep moving on on that point, uh, I once heard you give a really good explanation of of what you just said, the fact that so much of it's coming from their labor. You broke it down, I think, for as a Klein once. I heard you do that. Do you mind just breaking it down, like how you how you got to that point, like layering in the different types of folks we're talking about here?
1: Well, one way to do it is is almost journalistically, which is if you look at... Lawyers, partners at law firms whose profits per partner are greater than about $400,000 a year. Professionals who work in finance and banking, specialist medical doctors, elite accountants, and people who are vice presidents or above at S&P 1500 companies, you get to between 750,000 and a million people. And so that's over half of the one percent, and that's not a sort of sophisticated economic modeling way of doing it. There's a, a great paper by uh, Jagens Wick and some other economists that show the prominence of labor income using microdata. But this is a, just an intuitive and journalistic way of doing it. We know those jobs, we know who's in those jobs. we know what those jobs pay and and those jobs fill out the bulk of the one percent and those are people whose assets are their human capital, not inherited.
0: Yeah. Uh, one interesting update to your material is the world that we're living in right now. And what, what's fascinating about your work is that you talk about this group of people who derive so much of their self-worth from their labor. And so many of these people are are now inside. <laughs> uh And you know there was something funny you said at the end of I think it was the the Ezra Klein podcast where you basically talked about how quality of time versus quantity of time, and you said you know maybe you know these these folks who have now been working their asses off to provide for their family and to provide a certain way of life have made a trade off where they have probably been really bad at other aspects of life like parenting and friendship and just. Uh, attention to the, you know, the, you know, what's in front of their face. And so you said at the end of that podcast, or, or at some point in it, that, you know, maybe folks need to focus more on quantity of time uh, with their kids and with their families. Seems like they have that now. So what do you think this experiment's going to do to this group of elites? Is it going to change their culture, do you think? Is it going to make the the negative effects that you've described even worse? Uh, like, what do, you, what do you think this does to us?
1: I, I think this is a it's gonna be really complicated, Unsurprisingly, One thing we are starting to know, which is intuitive, but I don't think we know yet how pronounced this effect is, is that rich and educated people are much more able to work from home than the rest of the workforce. And so there are gonna be a bunch of rich and educated people who are actually logging a lot of work hours right now, just over the computer, over Zoom, and, uh, they're going to find that they're able to keep working very, very hard and maintain their professional identities in a relatively continuous way. Whereas anybody who needs to go to a factory, who needs to go to a warehouse, who needs to go to a retail store, can't work from home. And so is either filing for unemployment or is working in dangerous conditions. Uh, And so we're going to see a massive, I think, exacerbation of the class divide around labor as a result of this.
0: And I think as part of this, you know, our main audience are people in democratic politics. Mm-hmm. One thing that worries me a little bit after reading your book is that we draw so much from the ranks of the 1% even in democratic politics. So if you look at the debate stage uh for, you know, at the height of the democratic campaign, there was so much focus on Bloomberg and Steyer, right? But you have Mayor Pete, a Harvard graduate who is a consultant. You have Elizabeth Warren, a Harvard professor who was a very successful lawyer. Cory Booker, who is a Yale Law graduate. And you can go all the way down the list. And, and you know, I'm a Yale Law graduate. You're a Yale Law professor. It's right. not like we're saying these are bad people, but it seems like our perspectives are limited. Uh, do well, well, you worry about that? Yeah, yeah,
1: I do. I think, look, this is not an argument an independent argument in favor of my view, say, my labor-based view, and against, say, Piketty's capital-based view. But it is true that there's a a common progressive complaint right now, which is that the problem is wealthy capitalists. The problem isn't the 1%, it's the .0001%. And, And that view has the comforting feature that it absolves its natural audience of responsibility so that people like me, like you, for that matter, like Pete Buttigieg, can say we're not really the core of the problem. The core of the problem is these people who are much richer than we are, and, and we're righteous. Whereas I think, in fact, we and the institutions that have made us and the institutions that, in my case, I now serve, or in Buttigieg's case, McKinsey, that he served, are a significant part of the problem. In fact, I think the largest part of the problem of stratification, inequality, and structural subordination in our society. And the uber rich oligarchs, while far from innocent, and while proper subjects of political attack, and and we should do something to reduce their wealth and power, we could cure the oligarchy problem and still have most of the inequality that we're now suffering and that's something i think we need to remember as on the left.
0: And so if Elizabeth Warren called you into a room and said, "Hey, give me some tough feedback about my my view of the world and and the policies that i advocate for, what do you think the implication is for people like Warren and 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 Bernie politics, which is where i think the party is heading, right? I know that Biden is our nominee, but the more time i spend with young people and even people my age, you know, the kind of in between young and not young, Warren and Bernie are by far the most politicians amongst uh, right. that group all the way up to 40 years old. Uh, what do you think the implications are for their policies? Like, what, what are they missing right now?
1: So I think that there are, are two sets of implications. One set of implications is for their sort of political narrative and psychology, and one is for policy. For policy, the implications are we need a massive and serious education program, and that program... Needs to focus not just on reducing the gap between the education that poor and middle class people get, but also on reducing the gap between the education that middle class and rich people get. So we need to massively expand access to college and to good high schools way across the population. And this has to be an investment on the order of one or two or 3% of GDP, a big investment. And the second part of this is that we need to focus on labor policy and on technology policy. We need to favor technologies and forms of corporate organization and forms of work that benefit mid-skilled middle-class workers. And so we need a serious, it could be called industrial policy, but that sounds old fashioned because I don't know that the labor that we're gonna be doing is traditional industrial work, but it has to be work that somebody who is willing to work, capable, and has a, a good but not fancy education, can do and advance through. So those are the policy. Can I say one thing about the political psychology of this?
0: Can I before you do that, can yeah. I ask you just one question about that last piece that you just said? So when you talk about the the shifts to different kinds of work, can you give us some examples? Like what are some jobs sure. that, that you think we can lean into here? So so
1: here's a massive one. You know, healthcare is in this country 18, 20 percent of the economy by GDP. It's almost a fifth. We've had a huge debate over the past decade about how to pay for providing healthcare to people and how to get people healthcare in a broad and effective way. We've had very little debate about what kinds of workers should be doing healthcare. We have a healthcare system that's distinctive from everywhere else in the world in that it emphasizes high tech and super skilled workers, it doesn't emphasize middle tech, lower tech, and mid skilled workers we need many, many more nurse practitioners, many more nutritionists, many more exercise therapists, and many fewer heart transplant and cardiovascular surgeons. And and we need to shift the way we deliver healthcare so that what you get as a patient, as it were, is constant attention from mid-skilled people who help you live your life in a way that prevents disease and illness, rather than none of that and then you get super sick and some guy making a million dollars a year does some fancy surgical intervention
0: you know if you've ever read atul gwande's being mortal you know one thing that he talks about there is that we're doing such a great job as a society of extending people's lives but the quality of that life is is terrible yeah. you know my mom's a nurse in nursing homes i see this firsthand and i wonder whether this is the time period in which we add a new job to the labor force which is kind of like a a medical professional whose job is to solve the loneliness crisis among the elderly, if that makes any sense. Well, I think
1: it's not just uh, the loneliness crisis among the elderly, and and it's not just medicalized. Look, technology is replacing human labor for a whole series of mid-skilled tasks. And so one thing our labor policy needs to do is concentrate on forms of work where They're being done by a person is essential to their value. And this is care work. And it's it's teaching, it's care for the elderly, it's physical therapy. There are a whole series of tasks where a machine can't do it because part of what you want is the interaction with another person. And that should be a much larger sector of our economy. And we should train people to do them in a high value way so that people then get paid well for doing them.
0: And I totally agree. I think... One challenge we're going to face is that as hard as that task was three months ago, I think it's going to be twice as hard right now because whatever people dependent jobs we had before this crisis, we have so many fewer now. And it seems like, you know, if you, you follow people like Scott Galloway, they've been, I think, correctly pointing out that these tech giants and the super elite tech folks are, they, they gained even more of an upper hand in this crisis than they had before.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm worried about that also. And um, we are in the beginning of this crisis, not in the end or even the middle. And the way the social fabric will be changed by it and the way our politics will be affected by it is very hard for us to measure or see now. So I don't know which way that's going to go in the long run.
0: Yeah. Well, you were going to talk about the political psychology of it all.
1: Sure, just briefly, and and maybe this matters more to me than it should. But the other thing about the Warren and Sanders left is its focus on a highly moralized sense of the venality and corruption of the elite that it opposes. And while it's not that I think that the elite is uncorrupt or admirable, it is the case that if we got rid of all the corruption, we would get rid of only a small part of the problem. And so the other thing that I would say in your response to your question, if I were talking to to Warren, for example, I say, look, fine. let's let's go after corrupt elites. but But remember that the bulk of the problem we face is structural, and it's not the product of failures of private morality. And our politics needs to be a politics that isn't narrowly focused on individualized wrongdoing, in part because that lets the rest of society off the hook. And it it is a feature of the way in which we've organized our social and economic life, that we have this inequality, not that there's some bad actors out there. So I think that's the other part of this that I'd emphasize.
0: Well, let's shift in our final few minutes to on the ground. So you're a professor at Yale Law School. At various points of this conversation, we've talked about the, the responsibility of institutions to serve more students. And we talked about it in terms of private schools, and then you talked about it in terms of government policy and how we can change the labor force. Uh, what do you think happens to places like the Yale's and the Harvard's of the world moving forward in both in the narrow sense in response to this virus in the next year ahead? And do some of them start to open up their model and serve significantly more students?
1: In the narrow sense in response to the virus, I fear that what's gonna happen is that this will exacerbate rather than reduce inequality. That the the richest institutions will be able to ride it out and the highest status institutions will be able to draw students even if they have to teach remotely. Whereas poorer institutions or lower status institutions will be less secure and will have fewer students be willing to say, yeah, I'm going to come even if I can't come physically. So I think in the short to medium run, this is a bad thing for equality in education in a thousand ways besides the two that I mentioned. In the longer run, there's going to be a reckoning with super elite education. Probably many of your listeners have seen this statistic that Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford now educate more students whose parents are in the top 1% of the income distribution than students that come from the entire bottom half. So they really are overrun by rich students. At the same time, if you take the 10 largest university endowments in the country, and you just look at their growth over the past 30 or 40 years, and you extend that growth line out into the future, and you take U.S. household wealth, and you look at its growth, and you extend its growth out into the future, sometime in the 22nd century, those 10 universities will own all of America. And and that's not going to happen, obviously. And it's not going to happen, especially when they educate rich kids. So there is a kind of a reckoning coming. At the moment, I think the universities have understood that they have to educate a wider diversity of students. But they are still sort of prayerfully clinging to the thought that if they just look harder for exceptionally high achieving and talented people who aren't privileged, they'll be able to solve the problem and have a more diverse class. And the truth is that they should do that and that they will have a slightly more diverse class if they do that, but because the rich so much out-educate everybody else in their children, that's not a method that the entire sector can deploy to get better. What actually has to happen is they have to just become less elite. They have to educate more people. The gap between Harvard and the University of Massachusetts has to be smaller, And, and, and that requires a more fundamental reckoning that I think these universities are not yet willing to accept, but will be forced by circumstances to accept soon enough.
0: And so when you talk about the reckoning coming, I hate to end on such a negative note, but uh, I wonder whether what the relationship to Trump and that reckoning is. like. Is Trump the reckoning? Is he part of the reckoning? Is he a symptom of the reckoning? Is he related to the reckoning? And the reason why I ask is because you have so much rich data in your book about consumer habits mm-hmm. of the elite. And I think this is a part of the discussion that is not discussed enough. Uh, and the reason why I mentioned this is because I grew up on Staten Island, New York, and amongst, uh, including my family and my close friends, a ton of Trump supporters. And I think what's surprising to a lot of friends of mine who don't know a lot of Trump supporters is that there is a diversity amongst that group. And there are a lot of people I grew up with, their their Trump support is largely an FU to what what they view as this party that's going on that they are not invited to. And that was really their reaction. It was more a protest vote than anything else. Uh, What do you think the relationship is from Trump to this reckoning?
1: So I think two thoughts about that. One jumps off really very much from what you've just said, which is that people on the left often say things like, how can middle and working class people who are angry at inequality support Trump, who's a billionaire, who's an oligarch, who inherited his wealth? And, and that, I think, completely misses the point, which is that the justified resentment that many Americans have in the face of economic inequality isn't against the billionaires. It's against the professional class, because people correctly perceive that, although it may be unfair that some people inherit a billion dollars, that's not the unfairness that's keeping them down. What's keeping them down is the unfairness of the broader 1 to 10% of the professional class that is getting all the best housing, getting all the places in the best schools, getting the best jobs, and then using those jobs to restructure work so that nobody else has a job anymore. And, and so Trump is sort of not related to the inequality that's driving the protests. So so I think that's one thing that's definitely going on. The other thing which is, I think, important, and I don't know, you know, there's obviously a lot of dispute about this, and and I offer what's really now reporting rather than data. I interviewed a bunch of Trump supporters in connection with writing the book, and to a person, they were not impressed with his character. And to a person, they were not impressed with the most venomous and mean-spirited parts of his politics. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a portion of the American population that is deeply bigoted in various ways and marching forward towards some nativist form of exclusion. Of course there is. But a lot of Trump's support I think is in spite of rather than because of those features of his politics. And uh, that's something that's important for progressives and for the left to realize because one of the great political tasks of the next period is to find a way to get people who voted for Trump and supported Trump to climb down, to realize it was a mistake, to offer an alternative that speaks to their legitimate grievances, that objects to the illegitimate parts of Trump's politics, but not in a way that excludes anyone who ever supported Trump from our national life.
0: Yeah, and even if it was only five to ten percent of Trump's support, that's what you describe, right? I think it's a little higher than that. And I think that the debate that I have with a lot of people is like, what percentage of Trump's support base is racist, right? And I think that if you grant like a huge percentage of the Trump vote, if you granted to somebody that a huge percentage of that vote was for the worst possible reasons, there still is enough out there, in my opinion that are this other category that you're talking about. And if we just pick off enough of those folks and then do all the other things that we need to do on turn on our side, that's, that's the ball game.
1: Also, even within the, the racist group, you know, racist is a complicated category that covers a lot of things. So I think there's a, a, there are a lot of people who don't mind racism very much. It's not that they are committed to racism. It's just they don't mind it. They're not inclined to see it. When they see it, they're inclined to discount it. This has to do with the fact that, you know, this is a country that has never come to a serious reckoning with, you know, the fact that it was built on the most brutal genocidal form of oppression of a race, imaginable almost, and has never really taken that seriously. And so there's a lot of the population that's just not willing to see that. And and then there's a smaller set of the population that, kind of likes that and, and I think in Trump's supporters there is that small set but there's a lot of people who they don't really object to his racism but they're not committed to it and then there's this other five or ten percent you're talking about that does object to his racism but is angry enough to vote for him anyway and we do need to keep all three of those groups separate
0: and so as we round this conversation out, The reason why I wanted to talk to you is because the spirit of this all is self-examination, and so your book and the reason why I I highly recommend it, particularly for our audience, is because our audience are people like me. You know, they're people who uh, went to really good schools. Uh, They're people who either work at law firms or are doctors or entrepreneurs, and. Uh, The point of this podcast is not that they're bad. I mean, I'm one of them. Uh, And if if they're bad, I'm bad. So maybe we're all bad. But it's not like a simple black and white, but it's that we're particularly engaging in politics that can change the story that we're telling. And so what I want to ask you as we round this out is for people who are of that 1%, and so the people who'd be listening to this podcast are people who are of the 1% who actually care about policy, who want to do the right thing. What are just a few pieces you want to leave them with about how to think through the next few years in our politics and what we should be advocating for?
1: So I I think three things. First, in policy terms, most narrowly, focus on policies that will help empower more people and the middle class in particular. Don't get distracted by uh, shiny ideas that that make the elite more honorable or more responsible, there really does have to be a redistribution of power down throughout the society. Second point is that don't cling to your privilege, both because it's the wrong thing to do, but also because it's actually not in this elite's interest, that the deal that this elite has, and this is going to be completely vivid to any parent, is that Yes, your kids, if you're in the 1%, have all these advantages. But man, they're clawing and scratching to keep them. And you in your parenting are constantly worried they're not going to measure up and they're going to lose caste. And so a more equal society would make you a little less rich, but it would make you a lot more free. And it's in your interest also. And then the third point is that resist the urge to find private moral blame that politics at this moment is fundamentally structural. It's not about who is well-motivated and who's badly motivated, who is a good actor, who's a bad actor. It's about a series of economic and social structures, which mean that ordinary people behave in ways that are bad for everybody and focus on the structures. Don't focus on individual moral responsibility. So I think those are the the three things that I'd suggest, you know, for what it's worth. Of course, the fourth thing I'd suggest is that Anybody who makes suggestions of that sort probably shouldn't be listened to.
0: <laughs> well, Professor Markovitz, uh, I want to recommend to folks pick up uh, The Meritocracy Trap and you know, get it at your local bookstore uh, if you can. And I think it's an amazing read. It's a challenging read. It's one that anybody who is in that 1% to 10% I think needs to pick up and needs to internalize. Uh, and so thank you, Professor, for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.